Welcome to Lab Life with the Air Force Research Laboratory. Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Kenneth. Hello, folks. Today we are joined by Dr. Brad Barrett to discuss meteorology, AFOSR's sword office in Santiago, Chile, and a flurry of fun forecasting factoids. In three, two, one. Dr. Barrett, welcome to the podcast. Hey, good morning. Super excited about this episode because we're going to get to dive in and find out what your opinion on the movie Twister is. But to give our listeners a little context, you have had an exciting career as a meteorologist, including storm chasing for the Navy, which we can get into. But hot take, what do you think of Twister? <laughs> That's a great question, Michelle. So yeah, Twister, you know, there's a lot of exciting pieces to it. In graduate school, we used to sit around and and have our favorite beverage in hand. And every inaccuracy we saw in the movie, we would toast to it. We'd drink to it. So by the end of the movie, of course, you can imagine we we weren't, we were feeling very happy. We weren't all ourselves. So yeah, but Twisters, it's a, it's a cult film for us as meteorologists. It's one of those when you're flipping channels on the TV, you, if you run across Twister, you just got to stop. You know, Helen Hunt, Bill Paxson, they're great. And that's something that comes to mind, too, is I've talked to um, I've, uh, from some friends who serve in the Navy, uh, and they even talked about the Navy and the Air Force watching Top Gun and that being an inspiration for many newer, like, you know, uh, airmen or people in the Navy. So I have to wonder how many people saw Twister was like, I need to be a meteorologist. Like, this is inspiring me. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, back in, it came out in the mid-90s. And so there, there, if you track the numbers, there was a significant bump in meteorology enrollment at U.S. universities shortly after Twister. So I don't know how long it lasted, maybe 10 years or so, but it definitely was noticeable. I like that, the Twister effect. That's like, It almost sounds like a documentary surrounding the movie, so I like that. That, that makes sense. I was wondering if there was a correlation, and sounds like there might be. I think there was, yeah. <laughs> So uh, speaking of correlations, let, let, let's go back a little bit in your career. Let's go back to where it all began. So um, you got an interest in atmospheric sciences growing up and working on your family farm. Uh, how did that kind of grow into what it is today? Yeah, Ken, you're right. So I grew up in eastern North Carolina in a pretty rural area. And so working outside on the farm, you kind of realize that weather patterns, climate patterns, they absolutely affect your day-to-day life whether or not you can get out and work, whether or not you can have a miserable day outside working if it's really hot or if it's raining or something like that. So yeah, I got, I got interested in, in weather patterns pretty early in, in life. And back in the, in the 90s as well, when I, was, when I was growing up, the internet was just kind of becoming, uh, coming on the scene. So there were a lot of resources that were starting to, to be available to me. So I did a lot of kind of poking around and figuring things out and, and realized that you know, for me, atmospheric science and meteorology was was not just the, the the face on the evening news, you know, pointing at the screen talking about the the forecast. Although that I thought that was very interesting. I was very much a Weather Channel weenie. I don't know if anyone else out there is a Weather Channel fan or was a Weather Channel fan before the the storm stories, et cetera, took over. But back in the '90s, Weather Channel was really all weather, only weather, and I watched it a lot for for a couple of hours a day sometimes. So I was a fan of the TV people, but particularly online, you you start to realize that atmospheric science is is really grounded in and calculus and physics, particularly so the physics of the atmosphere. And that really attracted me as well as a, as a young person, you know, figure oh, there's, there's a lot of really cool scientific principles that undergird atmospheric science and meteorology. Oh yeah. The good old days when the weather channel actually just had the weather, just like MTV and, and music. But so you're growing up on the family farm, you, you find the weather channel, the internet, 
So you develop this love for weather and science. So then you end up pursuing a, a degree to me meteorology right off the bat. No, <laughs> you're right, Michelle. I did not study meteorology. So I had the idea, I guess, coming out of high school that I should try to get a degree that was marketable, that was pragmatic, that was that I could get a job from, from straight away. So my undergraduate degree is in business administration. I went to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and studied business administration there. Now, I will say I also started out as a math uh, double major with math and business. Those were quite challenging to fit into a four-year plan. So after the second year, I, I pivoted and focused only on business. So on my transcript, I had courses in calculus and differential equations that I actually was really fortunate to market when I was applying to graduate school after realizing, you know, having a job that's marketable is one thing, but what if you don't like it? If you're spending your career in something you don't enjoy, maybe that's not a very good place for me. So after really during my senior year at UNC, I realized, you know, I, the business degree is great, but my passions are in the STEM sciences and particularly in the atmospheric sciences. So in, in applying to graduate school, I was very fortunate to have those those core STEM courses, those math and physics courses there on the transcript that I could then leverage into springboarding into the Master's of Meteorology program at the University of Oklahoma. And that has to be a great place to study weather. I mean, there's so much violent weather that happens in Oklahoma and and tornadoes and and hail and drought, you know, probably all those things that you got to uh, experience firsthand. You're absolutely right. I really, really enjoyed graduate school and and really nerding out with all of my friends and, and classmates studying all the interesting aspects and elements of meteorology, the complicated and fun and violent all rolled into one. And of course, ironically, what was my thesis topic at the University of Oklahoma? Hurricanes. <laughs> so, so yeah, you know, of course, there are another element of violent weather. They don't really affect Oklahoma, certainly not directly. Uh, but no, my, my thesis advisor, that was his expertise. And so I, I joined in his research group and really started studying tropical cyclones, tropical meteorology, and hurricanes. Interesting. So is the reason that um, they were there then, is that one of the, uh, I assume, like top like uh, forecasting or at least meteorology schools in the nation then because of the location? That's why they were there, but still able to discuss uh, hurricanes? Yeah, well, so you're right, Ken, the, the university, the meteorology program is quite expansive. So they have concentrations in a lot of different areas. Interestingly, one of the, the most uh, kind of known, I guess, research specialties of the meteorology program at OU is in radar technology. And radar technology, as we know, is of great interest and in terms of remote sensing, of great interest to the Department of Defense, both the Navy and the Air Force. And one of the things that I've enjoyed in the new position here with the Air Force is that one of my friends in graduate school, Danny Scipion, he and I were friends, you know, didn't know that we would, we would cross paths 15, 20 years later, but I just had a call with him last week. He's going to become the new director of the Hikamarca Radio Observatory in Peru. And the work that they do at the Radio Observatory and, and observe in the upper atmosphere using radar to observe the upper atmosphere is of direct interest to the Air Force and the needs of the Air Force. So I'm super excited. I had a, a great conversation with a scientist out at RV and Kirtland, 
And we were talking about Hikamarka and said, oh, you know, I have, a, I have a phone call next week with a friend from graduate school at the University of Oklahoma. So while Danny's focus was on radar and observations of severe weather, and my focus was on hurricanes and, and understanding the, the climatological variability of hurricanes, 15 years later, we've now our paths have now met again to meet some of the research needs of the Air Force. What a wild circle there. Who, who could have predicted your future? Exactly. Yeah, it's fun. And for our listeners, right now you are sitting in Santiago, Chile, um, on our Air Force Office of Scientific Research team, specifically SWORD, or our Southern Office of Aerospace Research and Development, which we can go into later. But this isn't the first time that you've been in Santiago, Chile. We understand some of your studies that you've just been talking to us about took you there. Yeah, you're right, Michelle. So after I graduated from the University of Oklahoma, I was figuring out, well, okay, brand new PhD, what do I do now? And I had one opportunity that caught my eye as a postdoctoral research scholar with a group at the University of Chile here in Santiago. And so I applied and they really liked my resume. And so they they decided to hire me. So I moved to Chile sight unseen. I, I, I was not fluent in Spanish. I didn't know much about Latin American culture, certainly about Chilean culture, knew very little about it. But I thought, you know, this is a really cool opportunity for me. Why not take advantage of it? So I moved to Chile in 2007 and, and started work here as a postdoctoral scholar with Rene Garrold here at the University of Chile, studying some of the interesting weather and climate patterns all along Chile's coast. Chile is a very long coast, a lot of different climate zones, a lot of different interesting, interesting weather. So here in my, in my new role with the SWORD office of AFOSR, I am thrilled to be returning to the city and the, and the culture and the, and the country where I began my professional and my, my, my career uh, as a scientist. And something I do want to check too, because you were on the Pacific side there um, over in Chile. So a lot of folks asked the question. Um, so when you were doing your research for hurricanes, I am to understand that typhoon and hurricanes, is, is it just the location that makes them different, like Pacific versus Atlantic, or is there more to them? <laughs> yeah, Ken, there's yes and no. The, the location is very important, but it's not as simple as saying the Pacific Ocean. So the Western Pacific Ocean out by Asia, the predominant word is, is typhoon, although the Australians would call it cyclone. And in the other half of the Pacific Ocean from the, the dateline east, sort of by Hawaii and over by Mexico, the word is hurricane. So it's not quite as simple as saying, oh, it's just the ocean basin. No, but it is a regional regional term. And the Indian Ocean as well, the cyclone is the, the predominant word. Uh, typhoon in the Western Pacific, hurricane in the Atlantic and the Eastern Pacific. Honestly, I had no idea. The way I was uh, raised, a lot of the stuff I understood with um, you know weather patterns was, hey, if it's the Pacific, it's a typhoon. You know, Don't worry about it. But closer to Asia, of course, I had no idea. I didn't even think that even closer to uh, Hawaii, still hurricanes. So or I should say past that. Uh, yeah. So there you go, folks. I learned something. Hopefully you did too. So uh, yeah, that, yeah. that's very interesting. Um, and speaking of, after you kind of left chilling, reconnected here with work in the U.S., you started being a teacher at the Naval Academy. So uh, we'd love to hear about the work you did there and kind of the importance of uh, connecting with university-led research and how that really affects the DOD ecosystem. Yeah, well, that's a loaded question. So I, I was with the Navy for 12 years. I was hired from my postdoc, so I moved back from Santiago, Chile to Annapolis, Maryland to take a position as a tenure-track professor of meteorology in the oceanography department of the Naval Academy there in Annapolis. And that was a, a fantastic opportunity for me. 
I actually was an intern in graduate school at the Naval Research Lab in Monterey. And some of the listeners might also have some, some research collaborations with Naval Research Labs across the country. And so as a master's, late master's, early PhD student, that was my first exposure to Department of Defense funded research, particularly our fantastic research labs that are across the country. And I think the impression I left with was that, hey, the DOD really does care about research, cares, it takes good care of its scientists. And so when the, when the Navy had the opportunity or had the opening of the, as a professor, I thought, you know, this is a chance for me to apply. It's not the same thing. Of course, it's not a, a research lab. It's a, a teaching primarily institution to train the next generation of Naval and Marine Corps officers. But again, those, those seeds were planted back as a master's student at the Naval Research Lab in Monterey. So I, I spent my time in Annapolis. Again, as I said, the major focus was on training the midshipmen, the next generation of Naval and Marine Corps officers. And one of the things that I was and am very passionate about is scientific research. So I was, I was quickly plugged into advising uh, the, the, the sort of upper group, I guess, of students who are really focused on research projects and independent faculty-led research projects. Uh, more so than sort of a, the normal capstone research that everyone would do. So I, I led student projects in all kinds of interesting topics, some including hurricanes, some including tornadoes, some including drought and precipitation here in Chile, and then others including air quality and upper upper troposphere, lower stratosphere interactions, all kinds of interesting topics uh, of, from research projects. And so for there, I think for me, I began as I promoted through the ranks from assistant professor to associate professor to full professor with the Navy. I, I really did begin to appreciate both the complexities and the joy of scientific research and also the, the fun element of trying to connect your research with the broader needs of the Department of Defense. In my case, it was mostly the Navy and the Marine Corps, but I really grew to appreciate that that's, that's hard to transition your research from, from sort of the basic science questions of how does this work? Can we predict it? Can we understand it? To let's use this in a warfighting capability. Let's apply this to, to give our fighters an edge, to give us understanding of the battlefield space. And so I think that's the mentality that I, I hope I bring to the SWORD office here with AFRL, AFOSR here in, in Santiago. I can't quite get rid of the hat that I'm wearing or at least wore for 12 years as a researcher, someone who applied for funding from ONR, from NASA, from and the National Science Foundation, from those different funding agencies, someone who, who had to write proposals and go through the rigors and the, the heartaches of peer review and being told no. So I understand that pretty well. And then, uh, and then someone now as a program officer to to begin to, to be the person who is reviewing those proposals and and making those funding decisions and trying to decide well which which research ideas are most strategically aligned with the needs of the Air Force and how can we go about creating those partnerships here in Latin America with the universities? How can we better link those university partnerships to research AFRL researchers at the different TDs, the technical directorates? And extracting a piece of that story, uh, Michelle had mentioned it at the top. Uh, you talked about a lot of the cool research you connected with and assisting with students, obviously being a teacher, but taking some literal field trips to assist in some of this research. And we heard that a big connection you had with the Air Force was big Groovia chasing tornadoes. So can you go into that? Like, uh, what does that entail, especially if you're taking students along? Yeah, that, that's a great question, Ken. So one of the, the other cool things that I think is important when you're teaching 
is those hands-on experiences. So it's one thing to be up in the classroom, sort of the passive one-way knowledge distribution from me to the students, but it's something entirely else to go and take students into the field and learn by doing, learn by experiencing, by, by viewing and, and practicing the, the trade. So Storm Chasing is a, there, there are multiple programs on TV now. The Discovery Channel had a big push in the mid 2010s to, to document and follow along with people that I think Nat, National Geographic also did some specials. Maybe even PBS had a couple of Nova episodes on Storm Chasers. So of those episodes, I know pretty much everyone who's, who's portrayed, I either have a personal friendship with them, professional relationship, or have bumped into them in the gas station in Altus, Oklahoma, as we're out there getting ready to, to target a storm. So the chance to take uh, Navy midshipmen with me out into the field was one I, I, I couldn't pass up. So I proposed the, the idea and the senior leadership thought it was a really good idea. To my surprise, I think I thought, oh, there's there, no way they're going to let me storm chase with midshipmen. But then they thought it was a great idea to get into the focus is the mobile classroom aspect, not so much the drama and the adrenaline rush aspect. And one of the things that we really enjoyed is as we drove in our duty van out from Annapolis to the center of the country, we would typically pass through the uh, Scott Air Force Base area. And so there's a 15th operational weather squadron based there at Scott Air Force Base. And they were great to have us in. So we visited them probably nine of the 11 years or so that I led the, the activity. You know, there were two years we tried to visit, but the scheduling just didn't work out. But no, the Operational Weather Squadron was really great to have us in one morning, usually the beginning of our trip, or we drive all the way out to Scott Air Force Base and then and then visit them the next morning. And it was, it was great to visit with the airmen who are practicing what my students were learning. So the students would ask them questions of, well, what, te what techniques, what tools do you use to to identify weather that's hazardous to aircraft operations. And so the airmen would sit there and say, well, here's what I use. This is what I see. This is the documentation, the forms, the, it's a, it's a pretty bureaucratic process. You might, I mean, I was surprised. I mean, you'd be surprised. I mean, not that the, the airmen were very much constrained in, in how they would, would emit their warnings. A very, very standardized process, fill out the forms, submit it online, then it, it transmits to the pilots out, out in the field who are making their flight plans and trying to figure out, okay, well, what hazards might I encounter? Things from the most dramatic from things like severe storms, hail, lightning, but even sort of things that we might not think are as hazardous, but the ceiling height, where is the cloud deck begin? Is there any turbulence around? Can we, should we be concerned about icing at different vertical levels? Those kind of things that we might not think of as being hazardous, but are very important to, to flight operations. And so the airmen, the forecasters there were, of course, paying attention to that and then telling that, teaching basically my students, my Navy students about those processes. So it wasn't the case then that you had like the, the armored car and you were driving right up next to these tornadoes. I know that's what most people think when they imagine that storm chasing. No, no. The the armored car, uh, my my friend and classmate, actually, Reed Timmer, was one of the ones who developed the Dominator, I believe he, he called them all. And so, no, Reed and I actually took atmospheric dynamics together in graduate school back in 2002. So it's fun to know him back then before he was TV famous and and everything else. But no, it's, it's, we, we don't drive, we didn't drive around in an armored vehicle. It was a nice government duty van, you know, 12 passenger white Chevy van with, we did put some, some different instruments around. So it was a little bit, a little bit outfitted, but certainly not, not at all an armored vehicle where you lower the panels and, you know, prepare for, for impact from the tornado. Not at all. 
Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I couldn't imagine you drive head on in, but I, I had to ask. The fact that I had forgotten it was called the Dominator, like what what a fitting name. Um, but cool also that, like you mentioned, you know many of uh, your constituents out there working on television or a lot of these uh, very prolific positions uh, in the meteorological world. So that, that's really cool. Yeah, yeah. It's a small community. Meteorology is not, not that many people compared to, for example, economics or business, what I was studying before I decided to change change careers. There are millions of people who have degrees in business and, and economics, probably only thousands of people who have degrees in meteorology. Yeah, and the storm chaser, I know we're talking about like, I don't want to say the, the glamorous life of storm chasing on the Discovery Channel or something like that, but you're actually, you know, going in to get good data so we can, you know, maybe meteorologists can develop advanced warning systems or something like that to save lives. You're right. I mean, that's that's ultimately the the idea of the educational part or the research part behind storm chasing. And there, the number of people who do that, are, it's very small. We're talking about maybe maybe 100 people per year who are out in the field with instrumentation or mobile classrooms. You know, for us, the data that we were collecting, the data, we primarily just used it internal to teach the students, okay, this is what we were looking at earlier in, in the morning in terms of the satellite and the radar and the model output and then we're going to make some observations in the field to compare and contrast. Oh, is is the real atmosphere more or less humid than the models and, and other observations were suggesting? Is the real atmosphere is the, the wind from a different direction than we were expecting? Those sort of things. And but that's that's that was our classroom model. The people who are out in the field with research grade instrumentation, they're doing the same things. They may also have a mobile Doppler radar. Circling back to my friend Danny Skipion, who was a part of designing the engineering behind some of those mobile Doppler radar platforms to take and position closer. They're doing a, a whole lot more uh, in terms of data collection, but essentially they're also collecting wind observations. And thanks for nerding out with us about weather a little bit. I have to say that I haven't learned much about the weather since the third grade, and I don't know what it is. I think everyone's third grade teacher taught them about clouds and things like that. Mrs. Kender. Uh, was a wonderful uh, teacher that taught me, you know, hey, if it's a cumulus cloud, you could expect some good weather. Maybe if it's cirrus cloud and, you know, 24 hours, maybe we're going to get some storm activity. And those are little things that I remember since I was in the third grade. But I have to say, you tipped us off a little bit. You're very passionate about some people learning misinformation about how tornadoes are actually formed. And I think Ken was a victim of misinformation, so we won't name his third grade teacher. But I how was. are tornadoes actually formed? <laughs> I'm laughing because you are right. One of my pet peeves and something I'm very passionate about in terms of education, particularly of young people, but our listeners may not be all young, so everyone can can learn here. So one of the things that, that as a, I did as a professor at the Naval Academy, I was involved in STEM outreach. So I interacted with hundreds of school-aged children, primarily like late middle school, early high school age children over my tenure as a professor at the Naval Academy. And every version, every iteration of this module that I was leading them in, I would ask them, how do tornadoes form? And inevitably, every single time, I'm not kidding, I, I ran dozens of this module with hundreds, maybe thousands of children over a 12 year period, every single time, Students would say, oh, tornadoes form when hot air collides with cold air. And guess what? That is wrong. That is not true. That is incorrect. It is a fallacy. It is a, is a misinformation. Tornadoes do not form when hot air collides with cold air. So you can take that 
and I don't know, revisit your third grade teacher and say, hey, where is it in the curriculum where students are learning that tornadoes form when hot air meets cold air? That's not the case. So then how do tornadoes form? I'm glad you asked. So tornadoes form, and this is the, the, the high level 30 second answer here, but the most important ingredient for tornado formation is something called vertical wind shear. It's where wind changes directions as you go up in the atmosphere. So you have an atmosphere that's characterized by vertical wind shear. That's typically the case when you have these, these really dynamic weather systems that are associated with, with sometimes a lot of energy, an like upper level trough, instability aloft, these kind of things. So the wind shear is present. The thunderstorm forms in the environment of this wind shear. The thunderstorm is there and it and it will take the, the vertical shear. So you think about maybe like the, the, the surface of the, of the earth, the wind's coming from the south. Five miles up, it's coming from the west. This, this change in wind direction with height from the south to the west as you go up in the atmosphere produces this really slow overturning in the atmosphere. Think about it like an up-down, up-down process. Really slow overturning. Along comes a thunderstorm and moves over top of this slowly, almost like a, a horizontal cylinder. Well, the thunderstorm updraft will take that cylinder and tilt it upward. So now instead of up, down, up, down, you're tilting to round, round, round. That's really interesting. And of course, I'm making hand motions. Our viewers can't, our listeners can't see my hand motions. But we have slow, up, down, turning to round, round, round. If the thunderstorm is intense, and this is really important because not all thunderstorms have the same intensity. If the thunderstorm is intense, it will stretch that column of air it will shrink its radius. So instead of having just round, 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 you go from round, 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 Basically, that's the process. It's a little more complex than that, but vertical wind shear is critical for the formation of tornadoes. Without vertical wind shear, you might have a regular thunderstorm. You might even have some hail, some lightning, heavy rain. You won't have a tornado. There you have it, Ken. Now you know. Yeah, I was going to say, I've never been told the term vertical wind shear before. So um, I, I definitely appreciate that. I, I honestly, for our viewers and us, we've had these nice weather update moments. And I think these are very critical to this podcast because uh, this is one of the podcasts I would say I've learned the most. <laughs> well, I'm glad to be part of the larger effort to move away the mystery, get rid of the disinformation. Let's just get to the core. What do we know? What, how, do, how do these processes happen? There you go. Ken, I was going to say, this is the hard-hitting journalism that you went to school for. To You're right. Break, break the news that it's vertical wind shear to the public. You're uncovering the truth. Anyway. This will be one of the major focus points. We talk about this on social media. We're going to say, people, the truth of tornadoes and how they're formed, listen in to find out more. <laughs> Tune in right now. Here it is. So speaking of Dr. Barrett, uh, moving along your career and kind of uh, demystifying more of who you are, uh, you mentioned that you reconnected with the SOAR or connected with the SOAR office with AFOSR in Santiago, Chile. And I'm just curious. So we already know that you've been to the city beforehand. Uh, what was it like revisiting? Did you have a familiar feeling like, hey, it's almost like an old friend because you were there for a while or um, had the city changed since you saw it last? Just I kind of want to see the headspace you're in after returning. Yeah, that's a, a, another great question. I'll, I'll back up two steps and say that for me to apply for this sort of position was, I thought was a really great kind of coming together of different elements of my career up until this point. So my postdoc was in physically in Santiago, Chile. So the opportunity for the Air Force and AFOSR to send me back to the office there was, was fantastic. Second, the idea to transition from a kind of a doer of science, someone with my 
my hands kind of dirty in writing code and analyzing figures and trying to figure out, okay, what are the answers? What are the results to my hypotheses and my research questions? To transition from a person doing that to someone as a program officer who, as I said earlier, I'm then receiving other people's hypotheses and, and being a part of, of, a, of a team of people here in the sword office and deciding, oh, well, are these research questions aligned with the needs of the Air Force? And can we can we establish a partnership and build a relationship with this, these different researchers at different universities here in Latin America? So to transition from the doer of research to someone who's still involved in research, but someone who is, has a different role was very attractive to me. Something, okay, wow, this is really cool. And I know that within AFRL, there are lots of, I'll say lots of, there are every year a handful of opportunities in our various international offices for AFRL people to apply for something like I'm doing here in, in SWORD. So throw that out there as maybe somebody who has, uh, maybe somebody who's listening might also have thought through that or maybe at a point in, in their career where they're thinking the same thing. So for me to to move to Chile, you know, you're right. The, the city, it felt very familiar in some ways because the, the culture doesn't evolve as quickly. It's only been 10, 13 years since my postdoc. So the language that I began learning as a postdoc, I'm still able to apply. The language hasn't shifted that quickly. The uh, the foods and, and things are still very familiar, but then there's also a lot of things that are different. You know, the universities here are, uh, I think, particularly so in Chile and Brazil and Colombia, some of the maybe the larger countries in Latin America that have that do have really robust research and and higher education uh, investments in the country. When I was a postdoc to where uh, to now, the University of Chile particularly has continued to grow, continue to mature and advance its research agendas across a whole wide spectrum of of the of the different topics and areas, different faculties as they call them here, scattered throughout the city. And so that's been really cool for me to inherit a portfolio for my predecessor, uh, which has different research foci, particularly in space, space science, space weather, space domain awareness. That's going to be the core of my new portfolio here. But then to have projects in quantum science and optics and even some that, that touch on materials and some of the questions of material science, that those are the projects and the PIs, principal investigators that I'm interacting with here in, in throughout Latin America. And I am excited to, to learn and to see where have things evolved, how have things changed in uh, in Latin America, in Chile, particularly in Santiago, where where I am. The uh, One of the, the nice things about the position here is we are located in the U.S. Embassy here in Santiago. And part of the connection to the embassy then means that we are, I guess, a benefit or beneficiary of, of embassy policy. So the embassy here, all the housing is arranged through the embassy. So I was able to move to Chile. The apartment was already chosen for me. I didn't have to negotiate lease. I didn't have to figure out how do I sign up for this, that, and the other. Was As a postdoc, when I moved here 13 years ago, I had to do all of that myself. And I had to na- navigate that in a country I knew nothing about, didn't have the language ability. So you know, for me, the, the barrier to come in this time around, because the embassy is supporting me, supporting us, here in the office is 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 very very much a benefit. I really appreciate all of that. That was able to show up on the first day, move right into the apartment, get settled. The apartment is even furnished. The furnishings already here. The, the the things that are sitting in the room right behind me aren't even mine. They belong to the embassy. So that that was quite quite convenient. So to kind of synthesize some of the work that you're doing, Dr. Barrett. So you're in Chile, but you're really 
developing relationships and reviewing research that's happening in Latin America and throughout South America. And you're reading these ideas and these white papers, and then you're saying, hey, I think there might be something here. And you're also really informed about what a lot of our researchers are doing with other you know, areas of space research or material science. You're making connections because, you know, someone in uh, maybe Santiago or maybe Mexico or something could be doing this area of basic research and you're like, oh, if they just maybe want this little other mile, this would really be of, of worth to the United States Space Force or, or Air Force. Have you found any really exciting nuggets so far in making those connections between our, you know, our bench level scientists and strategic thinkers in the Air Force and Space Force and these uh, academics? Yeah, Michelle. So another of the, of the things that I've really enjoyed here as a as an employee in SWORD here, and I've, I've been in the office for about six months virtually and then physically here for about a month and a half in Santiago. And, you know, you're right. I'm, I'm learning that this position is really a lot about that relationship. And that's pretty different from what I was doing with the Navy as a professor. So back then, I would think of a, a science idea, hypothesis. I would read over the broad agency announcement, kind of what the agency was looking for. I would write my proposal. I'd send it off. It would go through peer review, and I would get the result back, yes or no. Well, here in our office, we don't view things or we don't work things quite like that. It's much more of the relationship. So what typically happens is, in fact, we'll have a meeting with a scientist even before they send a proposal. So we sit down, usually it's over Zoom right now, but eventually I'll go to their university, to, to their lab, to meet their team. We'd sit down and have a coffee, have like a half day visit, and I would learn what they're doing there in their research lab and, and what, what are their research questions, what's their research agenda. And they would learn from me, what are those needs of the Air Force and Space Force? So we have that conversation, that relationship. And then usually after that, they would send me and us a, a short white paper that outlines their ideas, the main uh, methodology, the main, the main research questions, the, the techniques they plan to use. And then again, unlike when I was in the U.S., where once I sent, submitted the proposal, it was a, it was a black zone with no interaction uh, between myself and the, the, the agency, I interact with the PIs. And so I take the white paper. I will then then send the white paper to my colleague at RV or uh, RX or RW, wherever the wherever the, the Air Force Research Lab that may, I think might connect best with, and ask them, "Hey, what do you all think about this? Can you give me some of your contacts in the lab uh, that might be able to to give critical evaluations of the ideas here in the white paper?" And so it would take the white paper, I would have those, that feedback from those lab scientists. And then I would then go back to the, the principal investigator, the researcher here in Latin America and say, okay, here's the feedback we have from our lab scientists. What do you, what do you think about adjusting your research hypotheses? Would you be interested instead of studying X, would you be interested in, in like massaging and, okay, still studying X, but, but tying it more closely to the needs of, of, of the Air Force and Space Force? particularly based on feedback from those lab scientists. So for me, the, the kind of continuum of interaction is really, I think, very, very great, very powerful. And it's something that I didn't have as a professor in the Naval Academy back in the U.S. And so one of the, you asked for an example, one of the examples I'm thinking of right now is, so we have a brand new project in, uh, in optics, I'll call it, or, or infrared sensors of a new project of a, of a brand new principal investigator we've never had a relationship with before in Colombia. 
He's in a small town called Bucaramanga, not, not one of the major universities of Columbia, Columbia but he has a, a, a robust research team. He's got about 50 different students at all different levels, undergraduate, master's, PhD, postdoc, who are working with him and his team. Really, really young uh, star, I would call him, rising star there in Columbia. And that partnership actually came to us from our relationship with the Colombian Air Force. So he has been working with the Colombian Air Force on some space-based needs, and they have a partnership with us via our position in the U.S. Embassy. And so we got clued in or connected to him via that connection through the Air Force. So very much an operational, I would say, slant. The project is very much basic sciences, so it's 6-1 level research. For those who know what 6-1 is, the very basic level of research. But the connection here is very much an operational piece. So Columbia's Air Force, our Air Force, and the needs of, of those of those groups are feeding or driving the projects that, that he's working on. So that, to me, that's a really exciting start. We, we have just begun the, a two-year relationship, two-year project with him. And I hope that we'll have a, a multi-year project that also, again, because of what I was saying about earlier, how the white papers that we get, the proposals we get, we try to interact with all of the different uh, subject matter experts and the different technical directorates at AFRL, we will hopefully be able to transition that work more naturally. The transition, those who are listening, who are working on transitions know that's really hard in science to take your basic research, something you might discover, and turn it into a, a strategic benefit to the Air Force or Space Force. That's really hard to do. But by having the link already established with the technical directorates, we think in SWORD at least, the, our, our vision is that the, the transitions become more natural. Will every project transition? Certainly not, because that's basic research. You can't transition everything. You don't know a priori when you start a project that this is gonna turn into the next greatest thing. You gotta do it and figure out what the results are. But having that relationship, the ability to interact with the, with the PI, with the person doing the research and say, hey, you had, you had your idea, but what do you think about changing your idea a little bit? Because we had some feedback from our lab scientists that said that if you did it in this other way, it'll be more beneficial to the lab and to our Air Force and Space Force. And usually PIs are pretty open to, to you know, adjusting their, their research hypotheses. If we're giving them money to fund some interesting equipment, some needed equipment, some, some things, they're pretty open to, to you know, adjusting what they're doing. It's very important. And like really taking one of the major messages there that I love to hear is like hearing that somebody has a brilliant idea, basic research that you see is like, yeah, I definitely think this could go somewhere. It's not quite the idea of saying like, hey, yay or nay, you're there to help. Like you said, it's almost this like scientific diplomacy, working alongside them, giving them the right tools they need. And like you said, helping align to not only match Air Force or Space Force goals, but to help the research. So it really is a two-way street of collaboration that I think a lot of people um, either aren't aware is happening or fully appreciate. Exactly. Back to one of the things, Michelle, that you said, what does AFRL have an international presence? And that's something that I, I really appreciate. And that maybe that's something that I benefit that I might bring to the job here. Again, because my, my career began not in the U.S., began really in, in Latin America, I can appreciate that, you know, knowledge creation discovery is international, it's global. The United States doesn't have the corner on the market of the newest and greatest things. And so one of the one of the things I've learned from listening to the the trainings, you know, as a new employee, we have a lot of trainings we get to go through. You all know that. One of the things I've learned with those is, yeah, one of the the major reasons why these international offices exist, their small budgets that we have that we are able to fund research, is that we we know that research certainly exists and and 
uh, research developments and discoveries happen in Latin America and everywhere else. We also, as the Air Force and Space Force, we don't want to be surprised by something that someone's doing outside the U.S. that we discover it after it's been transitioned to maybe benefit someone who's not a partner nation or an ally of us. And so we're we're out here kind of forward deployed in in, in various countries, supporting research in various countries, particularly for that reason too. That hey, we want we want to know what people are doing. We want to be a part of, be partnering with them and what they're doing, and we don't want any surprises. Great. I mean, that's one thing that I think it really comes to a head there, really brings our conversation to almost a very good conclusion. Uh, so the only, uh, the last question we really have for you then to kind of tie a lot of this together is with the cool research you're doing, the cool teams you're collaborating with, and all this really innovative basic research you're seeing, uh, is there anything that you see coming up the next like decade or so, maybe specifically in the atmospheric sciences that you think are pretty cool and that people should, uh, you know, look out for on the horizon? <laughs> yeah. That, that's also a good question. I think in in terms of so to the particularly for for the job that I'm, the, the role that I'm sitting here in AFOSR, the the job is you know hey we we're very interested in lower outer space. So take that and let it sink in for a bit. Lower outer space. So the part that's really close to Earth. So what what's going on there is of of great interest to to our needs, to our operational needs in the Air Force and Space Force. And to be very blunt. We don't know a lot about what's going on in lower outer space or the upper Earth's atmosphere. We know some things for sure, but we, there's a lot of great basic research that can come out of, of those questions. So that's putting on my AFOSR hat, my meteorology hat <laughs> from the, the rest of my life, the rest of my career, my hobby, everything else. So one of the things that I, I, I think is great that I hope people begun, begin to realize that, hey, the, there, there's a lot of variability in our Earth system. Like people are probably familiar with the, the day to night variability. That's something that we live pretty regularly. And it's pretty easy to notice that there's a cycle. Like every 24 hours, we go through this cycle. Great. People are probably also, particularly if, if, if some of our listeners are coming from Wright-Patterson or some of the other um, locations here in the, the mid-latitudes, People are also kind of familiar with the synoptic scale. That's a scale of, of sort of like maybe every four days or so, four to five days, a cold front will pass through. And you get really cold for a few days and then it will slowly warm back up, particularly in winter. And then the cold front comes through and it goes cold again and you warm back up slowly. That kind of cycle, the synoptic cycle, the synoptic scale people are familiar with. Certainly the seasonal cycle, we, we know that too, that, that winter is colder than summer. Great, we, we figured it out. Um, the longer than seasonal cycle. So that something people probably have heard about El Nino, the El Nino Southern Oscillation. People may have no idea what it is, but at least they've heard of it because it seems to be thrown out there. It's some popular culture like the Nino. So I think a Saturday Night Live skit uh, <laughs> making fun of El Nino. People heard of that too. Uh, one of the cores of my disciplinary scholarship as a professor at Navy was on the subseasonal time scale. So time scale shorter than the season. And the, the leading driver of variability on the subseasonal time scale is something that's in the tropical oceans and atmosphere. It's called the Madden-Julian Oscillation. And it, uh, without going into too many details, can it, it basically drives variability kind of on a month-to-month month cycle. So right now, we're in a particular phase of this MJO, Madden-Julian Oscillation, that will project onto hurricane activity. So here over the next couple of weeks in, in the Atlantic Ocean, we'll expect a ramp up here of hurricane activity here starting. I think the the, the, the thought is maybe mid-September, maybe early to mid-September, we'll, 
we'll have a, a nice range. But now, of course, that also coincides with the peak of the hurricane season. So people may say, well, there's already going to be hurricanes in September. That's true. There will be. And the expectation is there will be an, a plus up, an above normal activity driven by this thing called the Madden-Julian Oscillation that's on the subseasonal sort of one month instead of three months. The season will be three months, subseasonal about one month. So that was a really deep dive, sorry for the technical level there, but that's something that I'm kind of interested in. And circling back to my hat here with AFOSR in the sword office is, well, what are the variabilities? What are the, the modes of variability in lower outer space? Can we learn about them? Can we apply them and, and capitalize on our knowledge to, to, benefit of, to the benefit of Air Force and Space Force? And I'm sorry, just one parting question. Have you watched any of the six Sharknado films? <laughs> if Twister is a cult film, Sharknado is not. <laughs> Sharknado has not made it into the, the level of science just isn't to the point of Twister at least is based in some, you know, there's some they use some terminology that's pretty, pretty, pretty correct. Sharknado, not. No. So the answer is I've seen clips from multiple versions, but I have not sat down and watched an entire of any of the six. No. So as somebody who has seen three of the Sharknado films, I do have to check with you then. So uh, we mentioned, you know, the high low pressure fronts, misconceptions around tornadoes. Um, I learned from Sharknado 1 that if you have a uh, explosive enough force or high enough pressure, you could just get rid of a tornado by throwing dynamite into it. Like that. that's true, right? <laughs> okay. So... Technically, the energetics, you you could overwhelm the energetics. You gotta think about the tornadoes rotating. Our listeners probably understand kinetic energy. You know, if you enter a new energy source that could overwhelm the, the kinetic energy of the tornado, then yes, you, you you could destroy it. Now, you probably also like blow up a, a good portion of the US or like take part of the earth and explode it out into space. That's that's a consequence we'd like to not do. So yes, you're right, Ken. We could overwhelm if if we had the ability. Of course, like the 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 numbers of nuclear you know explosions or whatever, we could we could heat heat the atmosphere to uh, disrupt the circulation of the tornado. Yeah, I since you asked, I'll have to say it. So the the analogy I'd often give to kids is like some people have this in your in your bathroom. Some people don't. But if you've ever had like kind of a slower draining tub that can form the whirl in like the bathtub that as the water starts to swirl down, well, you with your foot, you can kick that and disrupt it. That's the same idea. Like your foot is much more, not really kinetic energy, but ma massive. I guess you could say kinetic energy too, much more energetic than the little whirl in the water. And so you, you absolutely, you've overwhelmed that water whirl system. You've killed it off. Same idea. Of course it's possible, but the the, the 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 extra consequences of exploding nuclear weapons or you know doing other things that 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 will would achieve your goal of destroying your tornado would also destroy your city it would kill people if you if you exploded nuclear weapons you'd have radioactive materials flung pretty much over the entire earth because they'd enter the jet stream and they'd go everywhere it's really bad so we don't want that okay I, th I think we've covered everything possibly we could in this in this episode the time that we have but even though i have so many questions about chris farley as el nino but we're just gonna put a pin in it for now we're gonna have you back someday we're gonna we're gonna talk about some fun stuff so thanks for joining us dr barrett great it was good to be here make sure to follow us on social media at facebook twitter linkedin instagram and youtube at af research lab and remember 
Stay curious. Logging off.